Philippians 3. Well, yeah, I, I found the keys that mom lost. How's that? I didn't know that was that funny. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> that's the hardest she's ever laughed at anything I've ever said. I should not try to tell jokes. Probably be a good thing uh, for. Um. Well, we are in Philippians, and I can promise you that this passage in Scripture, uh, in Philippians in particular, is no laughing matter. It's not a joke. I mean, Paul is very serious, and we'll see here why and uh, and how as we look at this passage. But we're we're going through this. Uh, epistle called Philippians. It's a letter to the church of Philippi written by Paul. He had visited this uh, city, uh, planted the church. You saw that in, in Acts 16. He visited him two more times on a second missionary journey. Now he finds himself in prison and writes this letter to this church who sent him uh, a gift through a man named Epaphroditus. We talked about Epaphroditus last week. We've mentioned him before. He brought the gift and then the Lord sent Epaphroditus back to the church of Philippi with this letter. Um, and again, we can only imagine the conversation that Paul had with Epaphroditus. I think we can at least glean some of the things that they talked about from the contents of the letter. Uh, but we've entitled the, the, the series in Philippians, Finding Joy in Christ Alone. And you'll see that theme all the way throughout this amazing book. Uh, but the title this morning uh, um, of the message is The Way to Righteousness. The Way to Righteousness. Uh, let's read. Um, our passage for this morning, verses 1 through 11. I'll just say this, even Jared made mention, you're going to go through verse 11 this morning? Now, of course, I went 17 through 30, which is huge last week. Usually I do two or three verses, but because of the context and because of the unit that this makes, it was very hard to break this up without losing the whole meaning. And sometimes you just, you just got to go and do a bigger chunk of Scripture to make sure you keep in context. Also, in fact, we could have gone down through verses 14, um, as well because they really tie in. In fact, we could have gone through verse 16 because they tie in too. We could have gone through the rest of the chapter because they all tie in. But this morning, just through verse 11, uh, by the grace of God. So let's look, begin reading here in verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God, on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that we have each week together and around your word and look at your word together and learn from your word. 
Lord, as always, we are at your mercy uh, to teach us, to open our hearts, to understand, and not only understand intellectually, but understand from a heart standpoint so that we might apply the principles that we will see in your word. Um, Lord, I pray that we would approach your word, all of us, uh, in humility and set under your word and not over your word. And Lord, remind us that this is your word. It's as, as we read this, we have heard from you just in the reading of your word a couple times this morning. Well, may we know that we are hearing from you just as if you spoke audibly to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or any of the other writers of Scripture, that we have heard you speak. So, Lord, help us understand this now, uh, that you might be glorified in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we would all agree that, at least hopefully in here, that there is a right and wrong way to do certain things. In lots of areas, there's right and there's wrong. Um, now, how someone approaches eating their Oreos is probably not the difference between right and wrong. Now, I know some of you would beg to differ. You like to pull them apart. Some of you like to dip them. Some of you just pop the whole thing in your mouth or whatever it is. And, and you think it's right. And their way is wrong. But if we're honest, that's not the difference between right and wrong. That's the difference between right and left. Right? The, the, you can't go wrong in however you eat Oreos. And there's nothing wrong with eating them differently. And sometimes we can hold to those preferences as principles. But they're preferences. And we can do that even in church, in a church setting, right? There's a, there's a right way to sing. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to me. You don't ever do it with drums. Or you always do it with an organ. Or you don't do it with any music at all. And those are preferences, not principles. It's not the difference between right and wrong. It's the difference between right and left. We can't get that mixed up. But it's important, though, when there are principles at stake, right, that we get them right, that there is a right way and a wrong way. There's a right way to get from, to get from Los Angeles to Hawaii. And there's a wrong way to get from Los Angeles to Hawaii. The right way is either by plane or by boat. The wrong way is by foot. There is a right and wrong way, right? The right way and the wrong way. The wrong way, by foot, you will drown. And you will die. So it has devastating consequences, right? This is one of those issues that there is a right and a wrong way. There's a right way to handle people that you may disagree with. And there is a wrong way to handle people you may disagree with. The way that ISIS is handling it now in Iraq would be the wrong way. The way that we're called to as Christians to handle people and deal with people who are different in love and respect and calling them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a right way too. And those things have devastating effects if, depending on choosing the right way. Now I'm, I'm trusting too that there's a right way and a wrong way, some of y'all can help me here, in how you handle a chemical plant and the way that you handle those chemicals. And I'm just trusting a lot of you in this room and in our community that you're handling those chemicals and the processes the right way because if you handle them the wrong way it could have devastating effects, right? We would all agree with that and we have a huge we have huge plants over here that if it was handled the wrong way not only would it hurt the people in the planet it could possibly hurt the people in the community, right? I guess my, my hair's turning green or something, I don't know. But uh, Right and wrong. There's a right way and a wrong way. When our passage this morning, Paul is going to present two ways to righteousness. 
And there's an absolute contrast between the two. By righteousness, Paul is speaking of the standard of moral perfection that God requires for mankind to be made right with him. That's what it means for righteousness, to be made right with God. Uh, There's one way that's right, and there's one way that's wrong. One way is God's way to righteousness, and the other one is man's way to righteousness. And just to remind us about how usually man's way works out compared to God's way, we can look to Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way which seems right to man, but end to end it it is the way of death. Or another translation, it leads to destruction. Mentioned twice in the Proverbs. Man's way to righteousness is devastating. It leads to death. It leads to eternal death separated from God in a place, a real place called hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. An eternal flame of suffering. That's what man's way leads to. It does not meet the standard of moral perfection that God requires to be made right with him. It falls short. Woefully short. However, God's way to righteousness leads to life. It leads to life because it does meet God's moral standard of righteousness to be made right with him, which leads to everlasting, never-ending, abundant and full joy. Which way would you like? You want man's way to righteousness or God's way to righteousness? I think anybody that's sane would say, hey, count me in for God's way to righteousness. But often we can get them confused. And Paul, in writing this letter to the church of Philippi, is dealing with the issue because this had crept in somehow. We're going to look at how here in a few minutes. How it had crept in to the church of Philippi. They would all say that they want God's way. They would all say we want it to end in life, everlasting joy with God forever in his presence. But some were pursuing a way of righteousness that was the wrong way, that would lead to death. Well, God, through Paul, uh, once wanted the, the, the church of Philippi to receive this letter. He wants us to know these two ways of righteousness so we, we can compare and contrast and see the right way to righteousness. So this morning we're going to look at these 11 verses in Philippians 3 and discover God's way to righteousness so that so that we might embrace his way and rejoice in his grace. Now I'm going to approach these verses a little bit different than we've done in the previous section that we, we've covered here in Philippi. I'm going to work down through the verses explaining what Paul God through Paul is is trying to communicate to the church of Philippi and then secondly to us. And and then I'm going to come back after I just work down through and look at some key truths. I'm going to come back after that and I'm going to give us four admonitions to follow in order to begin to apply the truths that are contained in these verses. So we're not going to actually have an outline working down. We're just going to work down through the verses. Does that sound okay? Me too, all right? And and it's just one of those things that we could have like 20 points. (laughs) <laughs> and you can't have 20 points in an outline, I guess, right? So we're just going to work down through. We're going to come back, and the points are going to be the points of application. Well, last week we finished this section that began in verse 27 of chapter 1, where Paul, Paul basically says, if you can just do one thing, 
Just one thing. Here it is. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, beginning in verse 28, down through the rest of chapter 2, he lays out what that looks like. Some of the examples of what it looks like to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And specifically, the one he dealt most with was contained in verses 3 and 4 in chapter 2. Do nothing from self-initiousness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. And then he goes and he illustrates that with Jesus and and tells them that it's the power of Christ in them that allows them to work that out in their life. And he give, it, it gives himself as an illustration. And Timothy's an illustration. And Epaphroditus is an illustration of selfless humility in the life of a believer that, which is conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then we come to verse 1 of chapter 3. And it's a, he, he changes the subject in a sense. It's related, but he really changes the subject. And... and, and so if you look there at verse 1, again, it says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. Notice that first word, finally. Uh, it could mean in conclusion. You do know what it means when a preacher says finally or in conclusion, right? Absolutely nothing. All right, that means he's going to keep going. And that's in a sense what Paul does. He keeps going. But it also can mean, and so, or furthermore, denoting that there's a, he's continuing his instruction. To It's not just, hey, this is the last thing I'm going to say, but furthermore, uh, let's keep going, and, and, and we're going to be working to a conclusion, but it's not the conclusion. Uh, Paul then tells them, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice no matter the circumstances in which you find yourself in. Now, could Paul say he had some very negative circumstances in his life you bet right now he finds himself in house arrest in prison in Rome and he could list a whole lot of things in his life that were in a sense were negative difficult things and yet throughout this epistle we see this rejoice in the Lord and he's calling to rejoice in the Lord why is he doing that well he's getting ready to, 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 to step into something very serious and sobering that he's going to warn them about and, he, he, and he's prefacing it I'm going to get ready to get real serious, Paul says. But rejoice in the Lord anyway. You can rejoice in the Lord even in spite of all that's going on in the church of Philippi or around you. Now, uh, no, notice the, the phrase, to write the same things again. He's most likely referring to things he had spoken to them earlier in his ministry among them. Remember, he had been there three times. Right, so it, it doesn't really, if you look at the context, he doesn't really relate specifically what he's already covered. Um, so most likely, because of all the time he spent with him, he's just saying, hey, I've talked about these things among you before. So to write it up to you again, it's, not a, it's no trouble. It's not a big deal. And he tells us why. It's no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. He has no trouble repeating these things because it will protect them from error. It will protect them from heresy, which can have devastating and ultimately damning consequences. So that's why he says that. He says, so it's a safeguard for you. That's why I'm doing this. That's why it's not a trouble for me. I don't mind repeating it. I mean, if, you, if you've got a child, and your child takes off down, running toward the road, and you say stop, and they don't stop. Do you say stop once? No, you say stop again. You say stop again. You say stop again. Don't keep running. You don't just give them one. Now, you hope they obey the first time. Well, they didn't give first time obedience. Tough luck. We don't ever do that, do we? And Paul, he loves these people. So he's not bothered by, hey, let me tell you this again. I'll just repeat myself so you get it. 
I don't want you to miss it. It's too important. It's not the difference between the way you eat Oreos. It's the difference whether you go to heaven or you whether you go to hell. Devastating consequence possibly. That's why Paul says this. Now look at verse 2 where Paul gives a little, so, this, the, 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 not a little, but gives a very sobering warning to his friends in the church of Philippi. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evildoers. Beware of the false circumcision. So much for the ushy-gushy rejoicing letter, huh? Beware. Look at the words he used. I mean, there, there's, some, there's some passion here and an urgency in Paul's voice. He, he uses the word beware. Your translation may say watch or look out for. It's a clear warning. All three phrases speak of the same group of people. All right, it's not three different. It's the same group. They describe a, a group known as the Judaizers. All right, so what, who are the Judaizers? They visited G- Gentile churches insisting that they be circumcised and follow the certain, the certain aspects of the law if they're going to be justified in the sight of God. Now they believe and they taught Jesus. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But they believed that, yes, you must believe that Jesus is Messiah, but you must also be circumcised and hold to this law and this law and this law and this law, and they could just keep on going with all their laws. They believed Jesus plus other things made a person right or righteous before God. Their way of righteousness was Jesus plus something and this is a damning heresy. And it's still around today. Let me give us a little math here, okay? Oh, you like math, you're skewed up here. I mean, I had a hard time with college algebra, all right? I took calculus and squeaked through that. I had one more um, math. I took that math. I'm not too bad at math, but I'm not like some of you have taken, taken all the math that I can't even spell. But listen to this. Jesus plus something else equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It equals justification. It equals the righteousness of God. So here it is. Jesus plus something equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the best math equation you'll ever learn. Now you may not pass calculus with that. But who cares if you're made right with God? Well, notice what, how Paul refers to these Judaizers, these three phrases. First, he, he says, beware of the dogs. It, it refers to unclean animals that were wild and fed on garbage and filth. This is not talking about a, your domesticated Fluffy or Fido. I mean, these were diseased dogs. If they got a hold of you, you would get a disease. They were nasty. They were like some of the dogs that you might run into in some of the larger third world cities would just run wild and eat anything. You don't want to get near them. They have not had their shots, I promise you. They're not taking their, their heartworm medicine. And they're wild. And that's what he refers to them as. And this was what the Jews called the Gentiles. It was used to refer to the people outside the blessings of the people of God. They're the dogs. And Paul kind of turns this back around. He uses this to describe the Judaizers. He says instead of others being outside the people of God, it's the Judaizers who are outside the people of God. They're the dogs. Not the Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ. It's these Judaizers who are the dogs now. They're outside of God's covenant people. 
Secondly, he refers to them as evil workers or evil doers. And Paul is most likely alluding, alluding to a phrase used a few times in the Psalms. For example, in Psalm 6, 8, Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. Some of your translations actually say, All you evil workers. The very same phrase he uses this Hebrew in the Greek. You evil workers. He says they are the evil workers. The Judaizers are the evil workers. And the word work here, or the do, was actually a word used to, in worship to serve the Lord. And their service was not ultimately unto the Lord. It was ultimately unto error and to the devil. And he turns this again on them. These people were the evil workers because they were enemies of the gospel teaching a works-based way to righteousness. They're evil workers. Thirdly, he refers to them as the false circumcision. And, and it's, it, this English translation says a false circumcision. Some, false circumcision. Some of you may say mutilators of the flesh. And that's probably a little more clear it's a play on words, which I'm going to show you here in a second. It's a play on words, but it's, it, it, the word actually means to cut or mutilate the flesh. Not just one cut, but to cut up the flesh. That's what this word means. And the word he uses here is a term that's not found in any other Christian, primitive Christian writings. It's not ever used again in the Bible except right here. This word he uses for the false circumcision or... Um, mutilators of the flesh. It refers to pagan cuttings of the body, which is forbidden under the law of Israel. You don't cut yourself like the pagans did. This is what pagans did. True circumcision was an outward sign of an inward circumcision of the heart. And this was the farthest thing from that because these Judaizers were not concerned about their heart. They were only concerned about the flesh. That's why he uses this word. He's going to use a word, the, the, the correct word for circumcision, the right kind of circumcision, here in a second. Let me ask you to turn with me to Jeremiah 9, 23 through 26. Chapter 9. Now, this is in the province of God, too. So I'm reading through the, the, the Bible um, this year, and I'm doing it chronologically, and this was one of my readings this week. And it just happened to deal with a passage we're going to be in this morning. Another providence of God here. So here we are. Look with me at chapter 9, verses 20 through 26. Now, Jeremiah is one of the later writing prophets. Um, he writes to the southern kingdom of Judah, not long for, to warn them, you better repent or you're going to end up like the northern kingdom. You're going to go captivity. The Syrians had taken them in, in captive um, in 722 B.C. This is before 605 597, 586 were the three waves that the southern kingdom was taken into captivity by uh, the Babylonians. Um, but this is before that happens. This is kind of the last ch chance for them to return and repent. So he's writing to the southern kingdom. He's warning them, you better turn. You, 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 you better turn to God and quit playing church. You're worshiping false gods, yet you want to show up and give sacrifices. And God's saying, keep your sacrifices. I don't need them. Your heart's wrong. So here he goes. Look what he says to him here in chapter 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. That's what they were doing. And let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. 
Boast in the Lord. Boast in knowing me. Now look at verse 25. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised, yet uncircumcised. Egypt and Judah. Egypt and Judah? The Egyptians weren't Israelites. But the Ju Judah was, right? They had been physically circumcised. Look what he does. He lumps Judah, the southern king, kingdom of Israel, in with Egypt. And, not only that, and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clipped their hair on their temples for all the nations. You all right, Bert? You're good, okay. I got Bert so excited he was jumping. All right. But here they, they're lumped in with the Gentiles, with the pagan people. Um, for all the nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. And this uncircumcision of the heart, or circumcision of the heart, is taught all through the Scriptures, all through the Old Testament. And he calls the nation, or the, the, the southern kingdom, Judah, uncircumcised. And he lumps them in with the physically uncircumcised. How insulting, but how true. Because he was way more concerned about the circumcision of the heart. The circumcision physically was supposed to point to the circumcision of the heart. To lead to that. Not be the end all. And these Judaizers were, had made the same mistake that Israel and Judah had made. They were concerned about the outward acts and not about the inward change. The Judaizers were teaching that the gospel was about doing your best. And one of those good things you could do, doing your best, was be physically circumcised. And hold out your paper the day I was circumcised and show everybody. Be careful about holding out that baptism slip, right? It's not what makes you saved. That's an outward sign of an inward change. That's not what makes you right with God. It's important. And he's not saying physical circumcision for the nation of Israel was not important. But that's not the end all. And they were holding up, this is the end all. They taught it was about doing your best. I love what Alistair Begg says here. He says, well, I don't actually have that up there, but let me just read this to you. The good news is not do your best. The good news is your best is never good enough. The good news is not do your best. The good news is your best is never good enough. That is the good news. What? And we're going to see why your best is never good enough and why that is good news. Now look with me at verse 3. For we are the true circumcision. Here you are, the contrasting. They're the false circumcision, these dogs, evil workers, the, 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 the mutilators of the flesh. And then Paul says, for we are the true circumcision. Now the true in the NASB is added to show the contrast. But in reality, the Judaizers have not truly uh, uh, been circumcised at all. The, the, the word um, true is not there. You see it's an itali itali italicized, okay? It's just trying to show the differentiation because you could actually, when the Greek you can really see it, it's hard to see in the English. That's why they do that. But he uses the right word for circumcision. The word that is used for circumcision all over the scripture. scripture. In, in the New Testament, in Greek, in Hebrew, circumcision then translated to the Greek the same word. And he uses that word now, not this word that's only used one time. And um, he's basically saying they, they're not circumcised. They're not the ones who are circumcised. We are. Now, who's the we? All Christians. We. He's writing to the church, 
Not just the, 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 maybe Timothy who's with him, Epaphroditus who's with him, we know both of those are with him. Um, but he's saying we, all of us, all Christians, we're the true circumcision. And, and the word circumcision here is, again, used, the, 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 the word that is used for circumcision throughout Scripture. And again, to show that they were not. Now, the following three phrases characterize the true circumcision. Now, he's talking about circumcision of the heart. Because ultimately, that's true circumcision. Whether you've been circumcised physically or not is not the issue. Is your, has your heart been circumcised? Has it been, and the word, the, 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 the real word for circumcision means to cut around, not to mutilate. There's a, there's a specific purpose for the cutting. Now, we could go into all that, but we're going to not go into all that this morning, okay? Maybe that would be better for all of us, right? You can go read about that, and I've talked, actually, talked about it before, but it's, 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 there's, there's a purpose for that. But the, the, the three, three phrases in the rest of verse 3 describe what true circumcision is. Here's a true circumcision. Who worship in the Spirit of God. So the first characteristic of those who are part of the true circumcision is they worship in the Spirit of God. And this is contrasted with the Judaizers, therefore, who do not worship in the Spirit of God. We saw this in John 4 when we walked through John's gospel. For some reason, I'm not there. There we go. There we go. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Here's Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, talking about worship. And he says to her that God is spirit, and those who worship, she wants to know about worshiping. She's really, okay, about worship. So what kind of worship is the right way? Is it our way, your way, the Jews, the, the Samaritans? Which way? He says that those who worship will worship in spirit and in truth. And Paul says that those who are the true circumcision, those who have been tr- circumcised of the heart, worship in the spirit of God. As opposed to those who only worship in the flesh, the Judaizers. All right? Uh, the, the word worship here also has the idea of service to God and was identified with the nation of Israel. Uh, Paul now says that this word is identified with Christians and no longer the nation of Israel. Who only, for this part of these Judaizers specifically, who hold to this is the end all. Hey, we got our circumcision. We're we're showing up at the temple still. And we we even believe in Jesus too. We'll we'll throw that in there. Paul's saying worship is no longer your word. Uh, My my good friend Tommy Nelson, pastor at Denton Bible Church, talking talking to an atheist one time. The guy was... Uh, they were kind of talking about just some philosophical things and how atheism, what it led to, what Christianity led to. And the guy goes, well, you know, like, like, like love. And Tom goes, hold on. That's my word. You can't use that word. Well, well how about faithfulness? That's my word too. You, you can't use that word. That's not a word an atheist can use. You don't know love. You don't know faith. You don't, what's your standard? You don't, you don't have any standard to base that on. And, and in the same way, Paul here is saying, you can't use that word. Because you're not using it rightly. You can't redefine words, which happens all the time nowadays. You can't redefine them. Let me give the true definition of these words and tell you who truly is following what God has called. So the, the next thing he says is, not only they worship in the spirit of truth, the spirit of God, but they glory in Christ Jesus, or your translation may say, they boast in Christ Jesus. They put confidence in Christ Jesus. To boast in something... To, to glory in is to put confidence in, to put confidence in Christ Jesus. And the Judaizers do not glory in Christ Jesus. They boast in themselves. In Galatians 6.14, 
of what Paul says. But I, may, I, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Boast only in the cross of Christ. Boast only in the Lord. And we actually go back to Jeremiah and see that's exactly what he said. It's about boasting not in what you do. It's about boasting in God. It's about not boasting what you do, but what he's done. There's a huge difference. Next, he says that to, to put no confidence in the flesh. And, and um, th- this is the negative restatement of what we just saw. He, so the positive is boast in Christ Jesus or glory in Christ Jesus. The negative is put confidence in the flesh. He says that those who are the true circumcision put no confidence in the flesh. They put no confidence in what they do. Now, you've heard me say this before, but the difference between Christianity and all other worldviews is a spelling difference. They spell it this, D-O. Christianity spells D-O-N-E. Done. It's not about what we do. Now, does it change what we do? You bet, but it's not about what we do. And he's saying, we put no confidence in the flesh. The Judaizers did. Uh, a guy named C.B. Caird says this, the point of the ensuing argument is that Christian salvation, Christian conduct, Christian progress are all the product of God's free, undeserved grace and not of human achievement, not even human spirituality. See, a lot of people want to talk about, hey, do you know God? Well, I'm spiritual. They use that term. I'm spiritual. And, and all their spirituality is, is them working, trying to appease God. And they'll never be able to appease God in their own spirituality. Because they're putting confidence where? In the flesh. That's Paul's point here. The Judaizers put confidence in the flesh to gain righteousness before God. So what does it mean to put confidence in the flesh? And we could probably go around the room and come up with some pretty good answers. But the great thing about Paul is now he's going to explain what it means to put confidence in the flesh. He's going to use himself as an illustration of what it means to put confidence in the flesh. So look at verse 4 with me. Although I myself have confidence, even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Paul basically says, if you want to compare your spiritual resume, then I'm game and no one's going to compete with mine. So, so what's, a, what's a resume? What a resume is, we take a piece of paper that has nothing on it right now, but we put down all the bad stuff we've ever done, right? And we go and apply for a job and say, look how awful I am, and I'm totally unqualified for this job. No, we put all the great things we've done to, to, to try to get the job. So if I put down, I'm the father of Joshua, Anna Marie, Jonathan, McKaylee, Kylie, and James, I must be applying for a bus driver's position, right? And I would probably do that because I could drive a big van, right, with them all in. And I, I put good things, things that, 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 that hold me up in front of my possible employer, as someone you might want to hire. So Paul basically says, Let me, let's get our spiritual resumes out. Let's get all the things that we've done that, that might make us right with God, and let's compare them and see who has the best one. And Paul says, before I start, tell you mine, I'll kill you. You're not even close. You won't be in the game. So let's look and see what he puts on his resume. Verse 7, he, 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 he begins in verse 7, and um, uh, not 7, he begins in verse 4 and goes down through verse 6, but he lists seven items on his spiritual resume. The first four were inherited, and the last three were things that he personally achieved. All right, let's begin in verse 5. Cir- circumcised on the eighth day. Paul was circumcised just as God had prescribed in the law. Uh, not like um, somebody who is a proselyte who came to, to be a Jew, Jew later and was circumcised later. He was on the eighth day 
Showing his family kept the law. He got in when he could get in on the day he could get in. He was circumcised the eighth day. And it says, of the nation of Israel. He was an Israelite by birth. That's what he's saying. I'm of the nation of Israel. I was born a Jew. Again, he's comparing himself. I'm not a proselyte. I was born a Jew. Then he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, what do we know about Benjamin? Benjamin was the son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Uh, She had had two sons, right? Uh, Joseph and Benjamin. But he was the only one of the 12 sons born in the land of promise. Benjamin was. And the tribe of Benjamin gave Israel its first king, Saul, who most likely is who Paul, who used to be Saul of Tarsus, was named after. Benjamin was the only tribe to stay with Judah and form the southern kingdom when they split. They were faithful, the tribe of Benjamin was. Benjamin was held in high esteem as far as the tribe goes in the nation of Israel. And Paul could trace his lineage back to Benjamin. Many people could not even at this time trace their lineage back to their tribe because the tribes had been dispersed and had intermarried so much in Assyria when, in, in 722 BC when the northern kingdom went and 586 finally when the southern kingdom went. They went and they got so dispersed amongst the people that many people couldn't tell you what tribe they're from. But Paul could. He said, you Judaizers, you got your lineage? You got your genealogy? There wasn't a website you'd go to then to find out your genealogy. You better have it if you want to stand with me, is what Paul's saying. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Then he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Points to the fact that he spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, and his family stayed away from the influence of the Gentile world. Because they spoke Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic, which is a form of Hebrew. And he said, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. So the first four points here that Paul lists basically point to the fact that he was orthodox in his genealogy and his upbringing and education were the tops. He was born into the Kennedy family and educated at Princeton. Now some of you may think that's a top, but I mean in our world's eyes that would be very high. Paul's saying, I- I'm up here. What else you got? Well, in case you got some more stuff, I still got some more stuff too. Look what I got. Now look at verse 5. As to the law of Pharisee, He was educated in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, the leading Pharisee of the day. Now, the Pharisee, the word means separated ones, and they appeared in the 2nd century B.C., and they greatly desired to keep the law and remain pure. Now, be careful to not completely condemn right now the Pharisees. We look at what the the arguments they had with Jesus. Oh, those guys are just terrible. Well, early on, their heart was right. They just went about the wrong way. And Jesus was trying to point that out, and they'd gotten so far away from things that it really didn't matter anymore. But they really had, the Pharisees wanted to be pure. They wanted to be right with God. So much so that they added to the law to explain the law. They added an oral law, which became as uh, foundational and as authoritative as the written law. That's what the Pharisees did. So they had a hundred laws to explain one, just in case you don't understand it. That was the way that they operated. And all this was to walk in holiness and attain righteousness. Paul's saying, that's the law of Pharisee. I mean, I had a greater desire than most people, than all the, most of the rest of the people in Israel, to be pleasing to the Lord. In fact, in Galatians, he says that he was, he was, he was better than all his countrymen in being a Pharisee. He was like one of the best of the Pharisees. He's a valedictorian of the Pharisees. 
But look at verse 6 now, what else he says. As to zeal, persecuted the church. He was so dedicated to the law that he would physically defend anything that he saw it was a threat to it. And Christianity was seen as a threat to Judaism. It was a threat to the law. So Paul persecuted church. Now, just for time's sake, we won't be able to look at all this, but in, in, to back up from what Jim just read, or here's the province of God, and, and, and at the end of Stephen being stoned, we, we heard this, who's standing there holding the cloaks of all the people stoning? A young man named Saul of Tarsus. And then in chapter 8 begins to talk about how Saul was, became a ringleader in the persecuting the church. And then we saw what he did. He's on his way to kill a bunch more Christians. And God arrests him and knocks him off his proverbial horse. Paul hated the church. He was zealous and he thought he was doing something right. And he's saying, if, if you're a Jewish person, if you're going to hold to the law and hold that you're made right with God through keeping the law, then, man, I was top dog at doing that. I was better than anybody. Now look at verse 6 of the phrase. It says, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Wow. What a statement. He says, as to the righteousness in the law, the righteousness can be attained from the law, found blameless. According to Pharisaic understanding the law, he was blameless. Now, he doesn't say he's without sin, and he doesn't say that he didn't have any inner failures, but outwardly, he was at the top when it came to keeping the law. He was a successful Pharisee. If anyone could attain God's standard of righteousness by keeping the law, it was Paul or Saul of Tarsus. No one could compare to the way that he lived according to the law. Now look at verse 7. There's Paul's spiritual resume. All right there. He held it up. He says, who wants to compare? Who, who wants to line up and compare with me? And I guarantee you none of the Judaizers wanted to touch Paul. None of them. And he knew it. But look what he does. Look at verse 7. But huge contrast don't miss this but whatever things were gain to me you know, what things he's talking about he's talking about the seven things he just mentioned above those things were gain to me and the word gain is and it's an accounting term it's a credit in your account he says look at all these things I've got whatever things those things were gain to me they're in the, in the good side of the ledger they're in my bank account. Whatever things were gained to me, now notice what he says. Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And loss is also an accounting term. It means a damage, a disadvantage. It's harmful. It's actually a debit. A debit. A debit card takes out stuff, right? So think about what Paul's doing. His whole life, he thought he was putting stuff in the credit line. He was deposited and he'd go and withdraw that and use it for good. But in reality, what he says is all the stuff he was putting in the credit was actually becoming a debit and he was in debt to the bank. All the good stuff was really bad stuff. Can you imagine going to your bank and I say, I'm going to put in my check. Right, let's say you put in a check for $1,000. And you come back next week, you put in a check for $1,000. And, and next week, you come back for $1,000. Next week, and you got four weeks in a row, you put in $1,000 into your savings account. Now you want to go and buy a couple new appliances. 
Right, lady? That's what you buy with your savings, your appliances. So you go and you, you, you go and to withdraw, and they tell you you don't have any money. In fact, you're negative 4000 in the hole. What? I've been putting in 1000 every... Oh, you're wrong. And Paul's saying, that's what happened. I put all these things in, thinking they were a credit, and yet they were a debit to me. They would cause damage to me. Now look at verse 8. More than that, now he, 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 that's pretty strong, but he says, now more than that, verse 8, I count all things to be lost and viewed as surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. The, the all things here is anything else he might be tempted to trust in to make himself right with God. He's a Roman citizen, material possessions, some position that he might hold, anything that he possibly could count is make, to make himself right with God in the flesh. He, he said, all things I count as loss. Again, it, 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 it's, it's worthless. And then the word here, knowing, it says, I count all things in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Now, the word knowing here indicates a close personal relationship of love. Taken from the Old Testament, the idea of the word know. They talk about people knowing their wife. God, God says of Israel, of you, you only do I know of all the nations. Now, he wasn't saying he didn't know about all the other nations. He says, I've got an intimate, personal relationship of love with the nation of Israel. And here, too, he's saying that to know Christ, surpassing, I view all that as lost so that I might have a close, intimate, personal relationship with Jesus. Then he says, I have suffered the loss of all things. This is past tense. This is go back to what Jim read. In Acts, I've suffered the loss. I have. I've been changed. I have lost all those things that I thought had made me right with God. I've lost them all. And that's a good thing. They're nothing for me. Now, I've lost them all. And then he says, just to, to, to hammer in the point, and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. The word rubbish, I just love the, the, the Greek word is skubalon. Now, that just doesn't sound good, does it? It isn't good. It means dung. And if you haven't seen cows and what they leave behind in the field, that's what he's talking about. He, he considers it dung. Or, or it's also was a wizard word that was also to refer as what you throw to the dog is a garbage heap. That's what he considers all those things that he just listed were positive. But they're not. He considers them done. What he does is he takes his spiritual resume and he wads it up and he throws it away. It's worthless. All the stuff I did in the flesh, it's worth nothing. Therefore, Judaizer, since you can't hang with me, yours is worth dung too. Now notice the, the phrase at the end of verse 8. So that. Here's the purpose. He, the purpose of giving up all these things or counting the loss, is I may gain Christ. He trades in everything else he used to count as gain for Christ. Empties everything out of his bank account that was actually counted against him, and Christ is placed there and counted for him. Now all he's got in his bank account is Jesus. And that's all he needs. I, I love this old hymn, I'd rather have Jesus. So I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. 
than to be a king of vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything the world affords today. I'd rather have Jesus than men of, men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide frame, fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. I'd rather have Jesus. And that's what Paul's saying here. I'd rather have Jesus. You can keep all that. I got Jesus. And that's all I need. He wanted to know nothing but to know Jesus Christ. Do you? Would you rather have Jesus than anything? Think about all the best things you could possibly do in this world. All the greatest experiences you could possibly have in this world. All the greatest power and possessions. All the most famous people you might meet in this world. Would you rather have Jesus than all of that? That's what Paul is saying. It's all about knowing Jesus. Now look at verse 9. And he says, I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but a righteousness which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 9 explains what it means to gain Christ. He, he says, it may be found in him. That's what it means to, be, to, be, to gain Christ. You're found in Christ. You're in him now. And he's in you. And, and then he goes on and says, not having a righteousness. Again, this righteousness is this absolute moral purity that God requires. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law by keeping of the law, which I did as be better than anybody, not having that kind of righteousness. He says, but the righteousness that comes through faith. This is how he gains Christ. He doesn't work for or merit Christ. He gains Christ through placing his faith in what Christ has done on his behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him, God the Father made him, Christ, who had no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He transferred Christ's righteousness to our account. And Paul says we come into that relationship and get his righteousness in our life by faith, not working for it, by trusting in it. It's not a righteousness based on personal merit or keeping the law. It's a righteousness that comes from God. He says, again, at the end, he's just reiterating, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. God's righteousness is the only righteousness that counts. What an amazing thing God did. He gave us, he called us to a standard we could not attain. We can't attain his righteousness. Perfection, perfect holiness. He called us to that. It says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're not even close. In our best day, we're not close. And yet this, the standard of righteousness, he gave us as a gift his righteousness to meet the standard in his son so that we do attain to his standard of righteousness when we're in Christ. I mean, if we were like a huge amen in church, it'd be so loud in here we wouldn't know what to do. That's unbelievable that he would do that. And that's what Paul's saying. This is it. This is the way of righteousness. The way to righteousness. It's God's righteousness. Now look at verse 10. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, and be conformed to his death. In knowing Christ, through faith, Paul can suffer by the power of the resurrection. These two words, it's hard to see in the English, but these two phrases, that I may know him, he's continually to pursue him. Yes, I do know him, but I want to keep knowing him more. I want to develop my relationship. Now, you, you, guys, you've heard of the... the, the, the uh, 
um, gentleman who was having a discussion after being married to his wife 40 years, and she was just really down one day, and, and, and he, he's like, what's going on? Why are you so upset? And, and she said, well, you know, you never tell me you love me. He says, I told you I love you when we got married. If that changes, I'll let you know. Don't ever do that, guys. That's not pursuing a relationship of love, is it, Jared? You better keep it coming, brother. All right? That's not pursuing a relationship of love. You've got to keep pursuing that relationship of love. Not that the relationship's going to necessarily won't be a relationship, but you want it to be sweet. And Paul wanted his relationship with the Lord to be sweet, to grow ever deeper in his love for Christ. We're in a love story. You know that? With, with the God of all the earth. And we want to pursue that. And Paul's saying that, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. And this power of his resurrection and fellowship of his sufferings, these two phrases are actually connected so that they work hand in hand. Christ in Paul, because of the power of the resurrection, enables him to work through suffering. And remember, Paul had lots of suffering. Uh, Peter O'Brien says this, I think is really good to help us understand this. Fellowship and suffering, the ability to endure suffering for Christ's sake becomes possible and rich in meaning because of the power of, the resur- of his resurrection. That's how they work together. Uh, Paul has moved now from justification, all right, being made right with God, being giving the righteousness of God credit to our account, so that we're not guilty. Now he's moved to progressive sanctification. See how that just happened? And he's actually going to hit glorification here in a second and talk about more of it next week. So he's gone from justification, being made right with God, given the righteousness of Christ in us, so the righteousness of God credit our account to me. Now we're justified. Now he's going progressive sanctification, which is an ongoing process. So we, he made us this. Now he's making our behavior and our thoughts line up to who he's made us into. Right? And then he will talk about glorification. Now notice the phrase, being conformed to his death. Uh, Paul puts this another way in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's been crucified. He's been conformed to his death. He's been put to death, the old man has. He's been raised a new man to walk in newness of life. So he's been conformed to his death. And he continues to want to be conformed to Christ and the cross and be made more and more like Christ. That's his desire. That's what he's saying. I want to be conformed in every way to what Christ did on the cross on my behalf. And I do that by faith. And I live my life now by faith because of the cross. And obviously the subsequent resurrection that came with that. Now look at verse 11. In order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead, now, this phrase, in order that I may obtain to, this is an expression of expectation, not a doubt. And, and it's some, this is one of those hard things in English to, to, um, to translate. And I would just say, just the whole context, if he was saying, well, I hope if, I, if I'm good enough, I, I, I would get to heaven and have the resurrection of the dead. That would contradict everything he just said, right? Just the context tells us he's not saying, well, I might get there not saying that the whole rest of the epistle and everything else he wrote it would contradict that it's an expression of expectation the goal of the resurrection is certain but how he will get there is not uh, peter o'brien puts it this way the goal of the resurrection is certain the way or route by which the possible which the apostle will reach it is unclear that's what's unclear will it be through martyrdom will it be will he be here when christ comes back he's not sure about that that's what he's not sure about He's not concerned about attaining the resurrection. He'll actually be raised when Christ comes back and be given a new body. Uh, 
another, J. Motier says this, the resurrection is certain, the intervening events are uncertain. That's what's uncertain here. This is a culmination of the process. This is speaking of glorification, when we will be given new bodies and live forever in the presence of God. And we've talked about this many times here, but just to keep, this is again, because it's so important, I'm going to be like Paul. I'm going to repeat myself. To write these things is no, doesn't hurt me. And it's a safeguard for you. And it's a safeguard for me. So salvation is not just an instantaneous thing. Part of salvation is. Because we have been saved from the, help me, penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. Salvation. It's way more than getting out of hell into heaven. Way more than that. And he has gone through this whole process right here. This process begins with when Christ's righteousness becomes yours through faith. That is the way of righteousness. The only way. Any other way is heresy. It's a damning, devastating, destructing heresy. That my guess is when he had sat down, when Epaphroditus came to talk to him, one of the other things he said, he said, Paul, some of those guys you warned us about, they're starting to show up. And, and some of the people are starting to listen a little bit to him. They're getting their ear. So Paul says, well, I love him too much. I've got, I got to address that. I've taught you all about this before. Let me tell you. There's only one way of righteousness. And that's through faith in Christ. The righteousness that God gives you in Christ. Although Paul knows this process is certain to take place, he still passionately pursues being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And we'll look at this more, this pressing on to complete maturity more next week. Salvation is not based on what I've done. It's based on what another one has done for me. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ. And salvation is not based upon what you have done. It is based on what another has done for you on your behalf. So here's our four admonitions to follow to help us put this into practice. First of all, beware of the dogs. Beware of the dogs. Beware of those who say Jesus plus anything else equals everything, equals justification, equals the righteousness of God. Beware of those people. As soon as they say, well, it's Jesus and then plus going to church every Sunday. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus the Lord's Supper. Jesus plus doing these works. Jesus plus. If they feel anything in there except nothing, beware. It'll send you to hell if you believe it. And you ought to lovingly call them. No, that's not what the scripture teaches. God's got a better way of righteousness. It's found in his son. Beware of the dog. Secondly, count all things as loss and dung. Throw away your spiritual resume. Now let me get real personal here. I lived there. Thankfully, I only lived there for 12 years of my life. But when I was nine, I walked the aisle and got wet one Sunday. If you know what I mean. If you grew up in the tradition that I did. There's nothing wrong with that tradition. But that's just what I did. I knew it was important. So I walked the aisle, and man, I asked Jesus into my heart. I knew all the words to say. Got wet the next Sunday. Nothing happened. And if you would ask me why I'd be right, right, right with God, I would say, my dad's a pastor. I go to church every Sunday. My dad's got the key, so I can go whenever anybody else can't go. I knew all the Bible verses. I did get thrown out of VBS one time, but we won't count that one on there. But I stayed in VBS the other years. I was a pretty good kid. I was better than the kid next door. I helped old ladies across the street. I didn't cuss. I didn't chew. I didn't go with girls that do. There's my resume. 
And I would have said that after, quote unquote, I came to know Christ. I didn't know Christ was the issue. I was still holding on to my resume. God, look at this. Look what I've done. Look who I am. I've got these things that have been given to me. I've done these things. Look at that. And some of you sit in this room right now. I'm not, I'm not thinking necessarily of a particular person. But I guarantee you, some of you in this room right now are still trusting in that. You prayed a prayer when you were 7 years old or 8 years old. Or maybe when you were 30 years old or 40 years old. But you're still trusting in you. You're trusting in Jesus plus something. And I'm calling you. By the mercies of God, just like Paul was calling these people he loved. I'm calling you who I love. Count it all as lost. Count as done. Throw that spiritual resume away and embrace Christ. And that's the, 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 the next thing. By faith, embrace Christ's righteousness. Quit trusting yourself and trust in what Christ has done for you. Then you'll be made right with God. Then you'll be righteous. Fourthly, by faith, continue to seek to know him more. That's just the starting point. It gets way better. Jared, where'd he go? Jared, this whole marriage thing, this engagement, and you get married, it gets better. I know it's hard to believe. I mean, that was awesome on Friday night, wasn't it? But it gets better, Sarah. Doesn't it? Those of you who've been married, it gets better. You better say yes. All right, it gets better. By the grace of God, it does get better. I mean, I thought I loved John Ellen when I, when I got married to her. Man, I'm not going to did I love her at all compared to how I love her now. But you've got to pursue that. So I'm calling all those who have the righteousness of Christ living in you, the one who's given you righteousness, wants to have an intimate relationship with you. Pursue him passionately with all that you are. By the grace of God, may we apply this unbelievable passage in our life in every way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity that is marked out here in Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Lord, we don't want to miss this because this is the difference between heaven and hell. And Paul loved these people so much that he goes from uh, this, this gentle encouragement to an all-out call and warning. Beware, beware, beware. Lord, I pray. For our people here at Grace, they would beware of the dogs. And some of them have been taken captive by the dogs just like I was. Lord, I pray you would rescue them out of that. That they would trust in your Son alone and his righteousness. Not a righteousness that comes from law derived by by the law. But but a righteousness that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Lord, I pray they would trust in you. And all of us who do know you, Lord, empower us by your grace. When we daily by faith trust in you, we've been crucified with you. And we no longer live, but Lord, you live in us. Lord, may we allow that to work out in our life and bring you glory in all things. That they might see the righteousness of Christ in us and bring you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.